This episode was actually brought to you by LuxMarket.com. Welcome back, Second Floor listeners. It's your co-host here, Kenny Buller, on the Second Floor Podcast. This is where we talk about how to survive, how to thrive, and keep the good vibes going in both life and business. On today's episode, I bring to you the one and only Manat Kalon Gill. Manat happens to juggle multiple different passion projects along with multiple different careers all at the same time. But what I love about the three careers in which Manat juggles is all of them encompass marketing in its truest form. For those of you who know me, your host, quite well, I'm a huge advocate and huge marketing enthusiast. So this guest and this episode I'm actually super excited to bring to you. Mana happens to be the marketing manager of West Edmonton Mall, North America's one of the biggest malls in the world, the biggest mall in North America. Also, number two, Manath runs her own fashion label company called Manath Mode. Manath Mode showcases South Asian fashion wear catered to women all around the world who appreciate and love South Asian Indian wear and she has this catered to the global audience. Number three, Manat is also a university professor at McEwen University, currently teaching international marketing. In this episode, we talk about what makes Manat Manat, we talk about her passion project she's doing, we talk about her career, and we talked about what marketing should look and feel like in today's world going into 2020. Without further ado, let's dive in and let's hear from Manat Kalon-Gill herself. Welcome back to the Second Floor Podcast, everybody. I'm here with my co-host, Omid, and we have the lovely Manat Kalon-Gill. Welcome Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for so, having me. Manat, I want us to talk a little bit about marketing today and how you're able to balance this career path in which you've chosen through all of the certain things you're doing with it that you have a passion for. Mm-hmm. So why don't we actually start with a little bit about uh, your fashion label sure. and how and where Manat Mode uh, came into fruition and where it's kind of at right now since you started. Sure. Um, yeah, Manat's Mode is a total passion project. So it started off as a blog, actually, um, quite a number of years ago now. Um, and yeah, I was just really into fashion. I thought um, I should do something more productive with my spare time instead of just watching Netflix, to be honest. Um, I had a cool corporate marketing job. Um, but yeah, I just wanted wanted a creative outlet, I guess. So I started just documenting my everyday outfits. Um, that turned into collaborating with a lot of creatives in the city. So uh, photographers, makeup artists, hair people. Um, and really building a really nice community um, on the blog itself. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco to do my master's in international marketing and decided to continue on over there. Um, so that was a great way to like meet new people as well. There's tons of people into, into fashion and just the creative industries in general in San Fran as well. Um, so it continued on over there. I was kind of too busy with school to give it give it a lot of time and attention. But once I moved back to Edmonton and 
the dust kind of settled. I was into the job that I wanted. Um, I just decided to, um, yeah, just take a chance on my passions and, and make it something more um, just so I could devote more time to it. I just noticed, um, you know, I would come after full days of work, but anytime I was working on my blog or, or thinking about designing outfits even for myself, um, I was never tired. I, I would just never feel the fatigue of my, you know, eight hour corporate marketing day when I was working on, on this business. So yeah, just made a business plan, um, you know, came up with some capital, obviously uh, myself, just saving up from my job, um, gave it about six months and really, really was strict about no shopping, no trips and things like that and kind of saved up enough to get it started off the ground. So initially my manufacturing was actually based out of India and my brother lives there. So he helped me kind of coordinate a lot of it. Um, but I found that clients here wanted a faster turnaround. So um, that's where I really thought what, where my forte was. Obviously, I was bringing a younger kind, kind of sensibility um, towards Indian clothes that isn't readily available in Edmonton. So that's a gap that I found that I could probably strike in. Um, and then the other thing was turnaround. So now actually all my manufacturing is based in Edmonton. I'm able to kind of turn outfits around in three or four weeks um, from scratch. So... Wow. Yeah, that, that's how it got started. I find that it's really unique how you, you originally started it out as a blog, and it was essentially a form of expressing yourself, Yes, which then turned into your love for fashion, obviously, and yep. it being a lot of Indian apparel and clothes that yep. you, you, know, you must have worn and appreciated since your whole yep. life. And, and I want to know if you knew since you started the blog that eventually it will be turning into something related mm -hmm. to fashions, or if that kind of struck you know, accord and you realize that, okay, now that I've built an, enough audience yeah. and I built this, this rep, this, this rep with my blog, I can now turn it into fashion. So I'm wondering how that kind of, yeah, into that in the um, it was an evolution for sure. I think at the time when I started my blog, it was probably about a decade ago now. Um, a lot of people were doing that. It wasn't, it wasn't that out of the blue that I had a blog on Instagram where I was kind of chronicling my, my daily outfits, but I really found that my interest was, um, towards Indian clothes. So I would kind of blog my everyday outfits and that was really fun. But anytime I had to feature an Indian outfit, I, I found myself giving it more attention and enjoying it a lot more. So it kind of stemmed from that and realizing and recognizing that, that, oh, I'm really into like the Indian fashion part of it. You know, it's not just any kind of fashion. So once I kind of recognized that and then that coupled with, again, just I'm in marketing. So I do a lot of market research in general. Um, and so when I started looking into fashion and what the sh options are in the Edmonton market, um, there was actually a gap in the market that I found. So it's kind of like this very passionate, burning desire of always wanting to do um, Indian fashion and then recognizing a tangible need and the marriage of that then really it becoming a business idea. Because um, I think a lot of times you can have really good ideas, but if the market isn't ready for it or if your market is already saturated, those ideas never really take off. Um, so I think it's taking a passion of yours and then doing industry and market research and realizing is there a need for what you have to offer um, and then really taking the next step and being, you know, it's great to follow your heart and all those things, but you do need to be a bit calculated when it comes to business. So it was, it was an evolution and it was kind of connecting the dots. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really neat. Yeah. And I, I find that with Indian fashion lately, it's starting to become slowly but surely more mainstream. Yes. And yep. especially with, as you've probably seen over the past years, 
you have certain individuals in Los Angeles wearing a turban, and, yeah, and they're yeah. really adding it to their wardrobe. Yeah, and I want to know if you feel like, especially with your clothing, especially yeah. what you're wearing today, which is Manak Mode, looks fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I want to know if you are on the, the the path with your own brand to mm-hmm. eventually turn it into everyday wear. Yeah, as opposed to just. Being something that aunties wear and, <laughs> and, and, and all the people wish hey, to wear. Hey, we love our aunties. Right? Aunties are great. <laughs> yeah, the, we give all the respect in the yes, world to aunties. Yes. But I want to know if that's your game plan, if you're on the trajectory of yeah. turning it into more everyday modern wear. Yeah, absolutely. I think like even what I'm wearing today, it's um, it can swing both ways. I'd wear this to a music festival or I would add a little tikka or earrings and wear it to someone's Indian reception, right? So, um Yeah, I think diversity and inclusion in general is such a huge topic right now. And you see that in editorials, you see it in fashion campaigns, um, you see it in big brands, even like Louis Vuitton, you know, that are um, that are making sure that there is a representation. We live in a global world. And yeah, I don't I don't think that's that's too far fetched and too far off. Um, I don't know if that's the driving force for me. Uh, I do think globalization is a reality, though. And um, obviously, I have, you know, I'm from India, but I live in Canada and we're such a multicultural society that uh, if you see someone wearing Indian clothes in the grocery store or on the street, I think no matter what culture you are, it's not like someone's jarred and saying, oh, my God, like, what is this? We live in a society where um, we're lucky to live in Canada, where, you know, everyone's so accepting and it's a melting pot and a hotbed of all these cultures and it's so great we can get influenced by each other um and so yeah i feel like all types of cultural dressing is um is in vogue so yeah after you said that i have that much more confidence now to start wearing my kurta pajamas there you go (laughs) there you go when i was uh, i was contracted on the marketing team with telus yeah i remember the first day i wore it during a big like multicultural uh, hurrah that we did in the office yeah i wore it and to be honest i remember making that decision with myself in the morning yeah i was like okay like you know, I'm going to have to wear this and I'm going to have to make sure I put my pride on my shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, there's going to be that much because <laughs> they're going to be, obviously, they're going to see how it's so much different from what everyone else is wearing. Yes. But yes. I feel like it's neat with fashion, to your point, about how it's going to be very unique and different. But so long as you yourself feel confident wearing yeah. it, then it, it will definitely show. That's you. huge. That's huge. Right? I feel like um, fashion is a great way to represent your identity. And as you said, you need to wear your kurta with pride, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm very proud of where I'm from um, and what my cultural background is, what my upbringing has been. Um, and that's a huge reason as to why I started this label. Um And moving here from a different country at the age of 11, uh, you know, you're in this flux period where it could have kind of gone either way. Either you assimilate into the mainstream to such an extent where um, it's not cool to be Indian anymore, or it's really holding on to your roots and holding on to what makes you you and what makes you unique and being proud of that. Um, and still understanding that you are in a different context. So maybe the way you conduct yourself is a little bit different than than where, you know, in your own country. But at the same time, I don't think there's a need to kind of shed everything from back home to try to be cool in this mainstream society. Um, and it's really funny. It's um, when I moved here, it was 2001. It was actually 10 days after 9-11 which was really scary to fly with my entire family after um, such a big world, devastating world event. Um, 
And at that time, you know, it wasn't really cool to speak in your own language here. Uh, a lot of my friends are still from, um, you know, my first day in school here. Uh, I went to DS McKenzie, so it was a very, uh, you know, multicultural school. All most of my friends from there are uh, from different cultures. They're Caucasian, they're Chinese. Actually, DS McKenzie didn't have a lot of Indian students. Mm-hmm. Um, And yeah, it was, I was kind of assimilating into mainstream culture and things like that. But I really found it was your own Indian personal network were the ones that were doing uh, the labeling. And and I, I was lucky. I don't think I was uh, bullied by any means. But I think there was a bit of an undercurrent of she's from India. And, you know, if I'm talking to my mom all of a sudden from English, like I knew English when I came here, but, you know, I would obviously sometimes switch into Hindi or switch into Punjabi or something like that. And there would be like a look or you would see other kids kind of be like, oh, she knows that language. And it's so funny how far we've come because now it's really cool to know multiple languages. And and I find um, it's the same people that, you know, when you're younger, you don't know any better. So it's not like I blame them by any means. But even in your personal network, it's those same kids that were kind of making fun of me for loving Rajma Chawal instead of a burger or, um, you know, making fun of me for being too Indian or having an accent at a young age or whatever that it was. Um, now they're proud to be Indian because, again, because of diversity and inclusion, globalization, um, it's really cool to know multiple languages. It's really cool to have an ethnic background. Um, all that stuff wasn't cool back then. So I feel like for um, like a young girl trying to make my way in this in this new country um my parents have like a huge role to play in making me comfortable in my own skin and that over the years has just built up to a point where i'm like i'm proud enough of this culture that yes i'm going to start a fashion label and it's going to be indian and represent and infuse both the worlds in which you love yes you know from from here in the West yeah. Coast, all the way to India. Yeah. And I mean, now that I look at, I'm about to turn 30 in a couple months. Um, can't believe I just said that <laughs> on camera. Um, but I've lived more of my life in Canada now than I did in India, obviously. Uh, but yeah, I feel like Manit's Mode represents uh, me in that sense. And so many other people um, in Canada, in and around the world, where you have influences from two cultures, you have influences from two societies. Um, I consider Canada home. And Edmonton is my hometown. That is what I list as my hometown. Uh, but there's a very strong, again, rooted pride that comes yeah. from from your culture. And I think it's important to be proud of uh, where you're from. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And to your to your point about that, I wanted to wanted to resonate with you on that. Before yeah. I share, I want to ask if Omid uh, wants to no, just I, elaborate on that yeah. feeling of you know when you're growing up as a kid and you share your own insights, even if it's through your own language and other people see it, it's mm-hmm. foreign to them. Yeah, I mean, like, at the end of the day, it's it's also due to how much you take influence from other people and, mm-hmm. and the society you're in, right? So when you come from a different country, you see all these people and they're, they're kind of giving you that look, right? They're giving you that look and you can either be influenced by that and say, you know what, I'm just going to hide this and throw it under the rug and mm-hmm. not be prideful of where I'm from or you do what you did and continue having those strong roots and... Some people just need reminders, right? I know a lot of friends, a lot of family who have essentially become whitewashed in a sense. And um, anything you do culturally, they kind of give you that judgment or whatever Mm -hmm. the case. But I feel like sometimes those people just need to be reminded of where they came from and and be prideful 
and, and, and wear it on your sleeve, you know? All right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I knew Omen would be the bridge for me to say what I wanted to say <laughs> because uh, it, it, it's such an eye-opener for what you just said. Mm. Because for me, I'm born in Edmonton. Right. And my world in my household was far different from the reality in which I saw mm. in a very, like, you know, white neighborhood, mm-hmm. me being probably one of the two brown kids in the school. Yeah. And I always felt like I almost needed to flick that Indian switch off. Right. And be like, okay, now I'm in school. Right. I got to do whatever I can yeah. to fit in, yeah. to to make friends and be just like them. Mm-hmm. It was always about trying to fit in for me. Yeah. And then it was only until I was around 18 where mm-hmm. I started to feel like you. And I was like, you know what? Wow. Like, it was the third time I went to India First time I'd say as like a young adult yeah. where I got to really appreciate it for what it was culturally. Right. And I realized that I grew up uh, so rebellious to my like bougies, my aunts, <laughs> and even my parents yeah. saying, oh, I'm just going to get by by saying hanji, hanji, hanji. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I would get by. And yeah. when you're so young, your yeah. relatives just think it's cute. They're like, yeah. oh, let him go play, whatever. Yeah. He has no idea what we're saying, yeah. right? They laugh it off. Yeah. And when I was 18, I realized that, okay, wow, you know, I... My grandparents are getting older. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm only going to be able to get to know them so much if I don't decide to really know where I came from. Mm-hmm. So it was at that time where I, on that trip, yeah. I said to my relatives, I said, listen, I'm going to make multiple mistakes. I'm going to mess it up so many times. Mm-hmm. But my first indication of me trying on getting to know my culture yeah. is speaking the language. Yeah. And I, I always said, and I always kind of ignored it, that they realized I would really mess up on words, mm-hmm. but they always, they never corrected me. Yeah. Because my, my family and uh, my immediate family would always feel like, oh, he's going to he's gonna get sensitive and <laughs> tell him that he's not saying it yeah. right. So yeah. I addressed it. Yeah. And then the mistakes I made yeah. was like endless. Yeah. But then every mistake I made and when it would get corrected in a language, it was that much quicker for me to pick up on it. Right. And the beautiful part was, is, uh, you know, six, eight months into it, yeah. I got to sit down with my grandma like this. Yeah. But we had a genuine conversation. Yeah. She got to learn a little bit about me. I got yeah. to learn about her. So beautiful. And, and I would ask my mom, I'd be like, mom, can you translate a little mm-hmm. bit? But beforehand, I'd ignore it because I felt like I was more into the, the Western world. Yes. You know, so it's, yeah. it's so great for someone like you to, to say that, you know, I'm sure you never stopped it mm-hmm. and then you turned it into something. Where... Yeah. And I mean, um, it's an evolution, right? So it's not like um, at, at 11 years old, I was super evolved and I just knew this. Um, it's over time. It's, mm-hmm. it's when you realize, oh, I think by trying to assimilate or mainstream so hard that I'm losing a little bit of myself. And what is that little bit? Um, and then being, being conscious about it so that you can stop it. Um, and I think traveling has a lot to do with it too. I mean, I, you know, everyone kind of the world is your oyster and everyone takes vacations and things like that. But I really find if you're not comfortable with who you are and if you don't know who you are, it's really hard to take in any other culture and enjoy it to the fullest. How are you going to go into um, Thailand and try to really immerse yourself in that experience it, yeah. when you're like, who am I? Yeah. Like, what do I stand for? Um, and so I really found that once I had that uh, acceptance, thankfully, while I was still a teenager uh, of, you know, this is me and whoever has a problem with it uh, doesn't need to be in my circle. Surround yourself that. with people who are who are encouraging. And I have to say, actually, out of everybody else, when I was a teenager, um, it was my Caucasian friends and my Chinese friends who I met on day one of school in Canada are the ones that really stuck by me and loved me for who I am and not my personal network of people who I thought 
would be the ones to rally and um, you know because they understood the cultural context they were Indian themselves that they would they would get the struggle they didn't because again you know they were born here and and didn't have the same experience as I did but yeah somehow I found it was it was those day one friends that really um, gave me the encouragement to kind of be myself and never and not by doing anything active being like oh like it's okay if you're this way it was just so normal that's just who you are they were just so accepting from day one that that's just that's just how it kind of rolled on and never had to do any explaining uh but i found that when i started then traveling um late into my teenager years and like early into my 20s that i was able to go into other cultures and and really immerse myself in a more authentic way than just taking it in kind of superficially um so i did a stint in thailand i lived there for four months doing an internship when i was 17 um and yeah i really found that they love that I was Indian and I was myself and I loved that they were Thai and um, we all had something to learn from each other. So yeah, I feel like it just That's adds cool. to your quality of life and what you get out of everything once you're comfortable with yourself. Yeah. yeah. It's really neat culturally how the question becomes, it doesn't become, oh, why do they do this? It just becomes, okay, this is how they do it. Yes. This is yeah. how I need to accept it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not you trying to be curious as to, oh, why, why do they pray at this time? Or, or why do they walk instead of, uh, you know, going into a car? Something yeah. that's not highly religious, but just the right. way it works in their society. Yeah. You don't question why. It's just how they yeah. do things. Yeah, and you have to be open to it, right? Yeah. A lot of people, when, when you've lived here your entire life, mm-hmm. you have this sense of the world, right? So going somewhere else or traveling and seeing yeah. something that's completely different, which is normal to, to those people that live there that's like a a shock to the system yeah so either you take it and accept it and be open to it and and let those let those um you know uh whatever they do you know in that society to to be like okay this is this is what they do i'm you know i I accept it and they accept who i am and where i come from but a lot of people here they don't do that Mm -hmm. they have this bubble you know, I come from, I've lived majority of my life in St. Albert. Mm-hmm. There's a bubble there. You know, people don't travel to India or go to the, go to different societies, right? Mm-hmm. So they have a view of the world that's just theirs. Yeah. So anything that's outside of that, such as us, like people that are different skin colors, different cultures, you go in there and they're shocked. Yeah. What is this? What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. Why do they have that on their head? Mm-hmm. Why are they wearing this? So if you as a person, like you said, if you're not comfortable with yourself, mm-hmm. you have those insecurities, but also you're not open, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't yeah. you can't do much. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of these big cities that are huge creative cultural hubs, when you think about it, when you think about a San Fran or you think about a New York, they're a melting pot of cultures and it's people who are very open to accepting and interacting with people with different backgrounds and different cultures, right? So I feel like the more traveling that happens, the more Edmonton even becomes uh, globalized and there's more and more kind of um, creative hunger here, uh, that, that there's immense potential in that. But again, you have to be, you have to be open to that's accepting definitely. all that. Yeah, that's what yeah. It is. And don't get me wrong, there definitely, there are some people who definitely are. Which is nice to see that in Edmonton and the surrounding bedroom communities. For sure. I wanted to uh, ask, as we're still on the topic of culture and and fashion in a sense, Mm -hmm. is is, has there ever been anyone throughout your journey, Manat, let's say, that has motivated you, influenced you to kind of spearhead your your love for fashion and turning this into 
Um, yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of different influences. I think everybody is uh, kind of amalgamation of all all your physical um, environments that you're surrounded by, the people that you're surrounded by. Uh, I would say taking the step into into business was, um, I think, my innate confidence just coming out. But uh, when you talk about people, I think they have a lot to do with getting me to that point of really then taking the leap and being confident enough to kind of uh, fly. So um, obviously your parents are your biggest influence. Like my dad literally thinks I can do nothing wrong. He thinks whatever I touch turns into gold. Um, And so from that, I really got um, a lot of self-confidence. So I had somebody telling me that I'm the best thing that's ever happened to him, ever happened to the world, ever happened to the universe. So, you know, as a kid, everyone around kind of would be like, okay, like, I think this is too much. Like, you're, she's going to go a little bit crazy. Yeah, she's going to do anything. Yeah, yeah. She, she's a little bit too spoiled. But really, hearing that affirmation, that positive affirmation every single day really did instill immense confidence in me. So, Again, whether I was adjusting from one country to the next or even if it was, you know, regular things, going from junior high to high school, um, going from high school to university, anytime I had an adjustment period, I feel like I was able to tackle it again because of everything my dad had instilled in me. He's like, you know, everything you need is inside of you. You are the best thing ever. So I really sometimes tapped into that, even though I knew he's totally skewed um, in his view of me. Uh, I think it did instill instill that silent confidence that came out at the right time. Um, I never really acted on or banked on that as I was growing up. But I think once I you know, had the education, once I thought I had a really good idea, it was really that confidence that then he was like, you know what? He thinks you can do anything in this world. Just go. Just try it. Um, And then obviously my mom as well. Uh, So my mom's a painter. She um, she's an HR professional by day, but um, I've watched her do oil paintings kind of my entire life. So regardless of, again, whatever country we were in, like I just know a house that has canvases up on easels all around and she's working on one idea or the other um i draw stick people so i'm actually very bad at sketching for me (laughs) for someone who's in fashion but yeah i think her paintings again art has such a subconscious effect on you it's really it's so subjective it's you know three people can be looking at a painting and you can get different things from it um so i don't think again she ever kind of like shoved the creativity down my throat or was like here you hold a paintbrush and you do it too it's just like watching her do it all my life Um, I think we always had like a running theme of art in the house just because of that and just everything on in my parents house it's it's painted by her so I think creatively um, I was very inspired by her and to this date um, and you know just her painting I want my my condo to have paintings um, that that are done by her so the creativity definitely comes from her Um, and then the third person I would say would be my husband um, who's behind the camera so it's a little bit hard (laughs) a little bit hard talking about him as he's here but yeah I was so spoiled by my dad that I really didn't think I would find somebody who would think I'm this like epitome of 
do whatever you want um, and that you know you are the best thing in this universe yeah. but I found somebody who actually um, who believed the same thing so um, he's much more realistic which is good you also you also need that uh, but yeah he's really become my partner in crime in terms of any ideas or not following the cookie cutter quintessential things of what's expected of us I've been with him since I was 21 so you know we've, we've pretty much grown up together Um, and I feel like when it was time to kind of take the next step in our relationship, like going by traditional norms and going by, you know, what the right thing to do is, he never fed into all that. It was really, hey, it's me and you against the world. Let's cultivate a life that we are proud of. And even to this day, that's the forefront of all our decision making. It's, you know, whether it's balancing family, balancing work, taking chances, coming up with business ideas, traveling, whatever it is. It's really us trying to, like, cultivate a world of our own and not following anything. So I feel like those three people for sure have had a huge influence. Wow. Yeah. I just want to appreciate the fact that you could have mentioned anybody, yet you mentioned the three, you know, closest people in your life. Who, yeah. Who, by close, I mean those who you have contact with every day and have clearly had such a huge impact on you. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. That's you, really really here. I feel like, uh, you know, there's so many inspirational people around the world. I mean, I could, I could go with Oprah. Yeah. I could go with Priyanka <laughs> Chopra. Sure. There's tons of amazing people and there's tons to learn uh, from everybody and what they're doing. And you do on a daily basis, of course, you know, you try to take in everything that you can. But it's so important to be grateful because at the end of the day, if my business were to falter and it has, um, you know, in as you guys know, too, like if you're doing any sort of entrepreneurial things or if you're doing business, like there's always hiccups, there's always bumps. Um, who's going to have your back is uh, your husband, your parents, your friends, your family. Right. It's It'll not. Yeah, it's it's not the Oprah's and the Priyanka Chopra's of the world. It is your innate inner circle. So I think it's really important to show that gratitude and be grateful and not take these people for granted. And I think actually getting married and moving out and, you know, living on our own in downtown has brought in a lot of that um, appreciation because once you really leave that environment, you really do appreciate it a lot more. I'm sure you understand now as well. I tell my mom often, yeah. mom, I mean, the fact that you did dishes every day and barely complained, like, yeah. thank you. And, it's, and a bunch of other things. Yes, like. yes. It's, it's from the littlest things, the day-to-day things, to the big picture things, to be like, wow, you guys must have been so tired when, you know, we moved here and you were working three jobs and you still took me to my soccer game. Like, this is insane. How did you do this? Meanwhile, we're just trying to... Um, you know, trying to not whine about supper every day, working one job. So it's, yeah, I feel like it's important to be grateful for the people yeah. who, who've always had your back. I think also yeah. those different personalities that you had, those values that you had from all the, all three, four different people. Yeah. I think those values that they instilled in you or you were influenced by really helped you kind of cultivate where you are right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because a lot of people, depending on their background, um, you know, having uh, your mother as a, you know, a creative mm-hmm. and having your father who just instills the ultimate confidence in you. Yeah. I think that's super important. Yes. And then having your husband as like the backbone and being realistic and being practical, but yeah. also supporting you in what you're doing is, is, is huge. Yeah. You know, so yeah. those... They're all kind of almost different personalities. For sure. Different values that are instilled. Yeah, and now that I think about it, actually, 
Um, my brother moved back to India. He did reverse oh, wow. immigration, which is just unheard of. <laughs> um, so he moved here with us initially and then, you know, was going to McEwen and doing his undergrad. And uh, he had a huge love for cricket and he was really good. So he played for the Canadian, you know, under 16 team, then played nationally for the Canadian under 18 team. And um, yeah, just decided to pursue it professionally. So I mean, at that time when he, which again, he moved back about a decade ago and to this date, he still lives in India and he's following his passion. Um, to watch that happen as well, I think in the beginning when you see your parents struggle with a decision like that, moving to a different country and then your kid wants to move back, um, it was tough. It was really tough on the family. Um, and for a long time, I kind of, almost became his mom I would ask the same questions my parents were asking like are you being responsible like what's your plan what's your five-year plan what's your 10-year plan and I became that person but I think over the last couple of years I really appreciate him being this wildflower and uh, following your passions and you know when you're younger you're kind of like okay this is the right thing to do like this will make mom and dad happy and this is the path you're supposed to follow and he was breaking that so at that point I was like you know what all I see the consequence of that is conflict right now. But in hindsight, now that I think about it, I think about how much harder it is to follow your passion. And that realization only came when I had to do that. And I realized like how much you put on the line uh, for your passion. And, it, and it's not easy to cold cut like that and just be like, I'm gonna follow my dream. Like people think, you know, maybe it's uh, irresponsible to do it that way, to not have backup plans, but actually it's really ballsy and it's really hard to do. Yeah. And the majority of the people don't do it because of that reason, because of the fear of the unknown, right? So um, now it's the same things and the same qualities that are really appreciated in him. And um, anytime I have a crazy out of the box idea, which I know maybe even these three people that I've named will not get, I give him a call in India and I'm like, hey, listen, what do you think of this business plan? Because I know he's just pure heart. He's um, pure passion. So, yeah, I think my brother making the moves that he did, too. Um, it took me a while to understand his choices and his decisions. But as I've gotten older, I, I realize and I've, I value what that ended up subconsciously bringing into my world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so unique. Yeah. I can't imagine. I, I'm just thinking right now how beautiful it would be to witness you and all your immediate family members in one room having dinner and like yeah. just to hear how everyone oh. has such a unique like vision and fireworks <laughs> it's fireworks sometimes that. it's like Diwali fireworks and sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's the other kind so exactly. <laughs> always exciting though and I love how Ovid always he's my boy he stole the words right out of me right how like your family and all your closest people to you really shape who you are now yeah right with the confidence and then with the artistic perception yeah and uh you know before we transition into uh, what you're doing mainly as your career mm -hmm. i want to ask you if there's any fashion icon you do want to recognize right now who's quite the game changer that you see kind of being on the same path as you are mm -hmm. where you're bringing in you know a taste of india to the western world right um, is there anybody in the world that you kind of want to recognize and that you kind of idol idolize as well just for what they're doing work-wise yeah um, there's so many Indian designers that are great, uh, but I really think I appreciate the people that can really stick to their vision uh, in a time where you getting influenced by other people and again, assimilating is a much more easier and feasible option. Um, and designers who really uh, don't always put the commerce 
in front of their design sensibilities. And I think that's the reason probably why these designers have lasted so long. So one is Sabya Sachi. Um, I was really excited when I got to wear Sabya Sachi for my wedding day. It was a dream of mine. Um, so he's built this fashion empire and he has all through these years stuck to his Indian sensibilities, the Indian handicrafts, the Indian karigari um, it's called. Um, and that is really commendable because a lot of the other designers that came at the same time as him really just wanted to commercialize and they looked at it as a business proposition. So that would start showing in their designs where they were kind of assimilating to what the trends were. Um, India started getting influenced by the Western world a lot in the last decade or even in the last two decades. And I just find that his label really stuck to the authentic pride of India and the heartland of what Indian fashion and Indian handiwork stands for. Um, whereas a lot of the other designers, you know, started inculcating a lot of those Western sensibilities into their label. And that's worked for them. And that's great. Um, but he never focused on the commercialization and really stuck to who he was. And to this day is the most, you know, sought after designer in India. So I think it's really cool for somebody to not give into that external pressure and making his brand more commercial, more accessible, uh, more westernized, so to say. Um, that doesn't mean he hasn't changed with the times, because obviously you need to stay relevant in order to uh, be a success as a business. But I still find intrinsically that all his pieces and all his designs really breathe India, yeah. which is which is um, great. And, you know, he's dressed everyone around the world, um, pop stars from Europe or Brazil or Shakira's and, you know, the Pussycat Dolls, whatever you name it. But he's taken he's made them um, immerse themselves into the Indian silhouette instead of him trying to change his label for them. Yeah. So that's been really commendable to see. Um Another designer that really, really inspires me is a designer called Masaba. So she is uh, super young. Actually, when she started, I think her first line came out when she was 19. Wow. And again, she just knew her mind at a very young age. She introduced prints, I would say, in the Indian mainstream um, ramp fashion culture. Um, so obviously prints have always existed, but she kind of made prints couture. Um, and she has, again, continued to evolve, but not in one direction. So mm -hmm. she's not unilateral, like I'm a designer and this is what I must stick to. Um, she's gone into cosmetics. She's gone on to even design for other fashion brands. Um, and she really branches out in different ways, which I really, really like. Um, and that really makes me believe like I don't need to be boxed in. So any new ideas that are in my mind right now, a lot of them are inspired by watching people like that who are like, okay, just because you're really successful at this one thing doesn't mean you need to stick to it. Um, and I think that's really important to continue evolving, to continue um, going into uncharted territories just because no one else has done it before doesn't mean you can't do it. Um, so I really appreciate her for that spirit. So I would say Sabia Sachi and Masaba are my two faves that's awesome yes listen second floor listeners fans we have some news for you guys you shopped around for everyone else now it's time to shop for yourself get that blazer you've been waiting on gentlemen maybe get a couple of ties to refresh your wardrobe or even get a fresh pair of jeans whether you're looking for Zenya, Montclair or Naked and Famous Lux Market has you covered 
with prices 50 to 90% off retail. Means that even though you bought for others and the wallet's looking slim, you can afford to splurge on yourself. Head on over to luxmarket.com. That's L-U-X-M-R-K-T.com now to shop the finest menswear brands. Available 24 hours a day, shipping anywhere in Canada and the United States of America. Easy shopping, fast shipping, and hassle-free returns. L-U-X-M-R-K-T.com. To your point about Sabia Sachi, because I've, yes. I've heard a lot about him and there's been a lot of uh, rays from him just from what I've seen is yep. he, to me, I always like to say he's like the Louis Vuitton of yes. India, right? Yeah. And at the same time, uh, there's just this royalty, just this royal, like, this vibe he gives off in his clothing. Yeah. really neat. Yeah. And then to your second point about Mas- Masaba. Masaba. Okay, yeah. There you go. With Masaba, it's neat because... You realize that with someone like that, and I'm, I'd love to look into more of yeah. her work, is you find that so many times, and I'm sure you heard about this in marketing, is you know you, you, you segment who your audience is and then you create this niche profile yes. around who you need to target. Yep. But then you get someone like her where she's going to be able to create something for pretty yep. much anybody and yep. everybody. Where there's going to be this like, like this social group that's going to like this specific piece. Right. And then there's going to be this other group that's yeah. going to like this piece. So when you could capture that entire market, it becomes a really beautiful thing. Yeah, and she was she became really successful and very well known for her prints. So she came up with uh, came out with these custom prints, and anytime you'd see them, you know it's a masaba. So she had already actually aced that space, yeah. and then for her to take a chance on something completely unchartered and go into this other territory, which she really didn't need to do, except for the need for, you know, personal fulfillment and trying to push yourself and, um, and yeah, just trying to, trying to excel in something else is really inspirational to see. Because usually you see people who are kind of, you know, if you've mastered something, you kind of stick to it and you capitalize on that and you play up your strengths and you just... Um, continue building on that but for her but yeah but to see somebody kind of go into uncharted territory not knowing whether you know if you're a success story and then you try something else and it fails that could technically damage her brand that that has become so successful Um, but her yeah just being like a risk taker in that way right not not worrying about the perceptions and and just just trying things yeah yeah I want to transition the conversation now into marketing as a whole mm-hmm. and how you fueled your passion and your knowledge and education and marketing right. to what you're now doing with Westminster Mall. Yeah. And I want to first of all ask, and I love asking every single marketing <laughs> enthusiast this, in your perspective yep. and from how you, let's say, utilize marketing, yep. how would you define what marketing is, especially to, let's say, the audience member that they think they have an idea of it. <laughs> they're the ones that go, oh, marketing, it's advertising, right? Like that's yeah. maybe the first yeah. lens they're going to view it in. Yeah. And um, let's say for somebody who is considering marketing as a career or as yeah. a chance to get educated in it, how would you define it? So I would say um, marketing is basically an amplifier. It's, it's a medium. Uh, so you have your product or service, uh, that does its functions and then you have an audience that you think can benefit from it and what marketing basically does is amplify the value of your product and service to your target market um, so it's really 
a medium or a channel for a company or again a product or service to really reach its consumers um, so in a nutshell that's how I would describe it now the way that you can amplify a message is immense right so now then you get into traditional media and digital media and advertising and public relations and communications and the marketing mix that you come up with but essentially it's an amplifier it amplifies whatever you want to as a company tell your target consumer base. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. very unique because I love how you mentioned that there's more than one way of doing it. Yes. Right? If you're digitally savvy, you do it through digital media. Yep. If you're very much so outspoken and conversational, you do it through word of mouth. Yes. Right? And then yep. if you're uh, somebody who, let's say you're a blogger and you like to write and that's how you like to articulate information, yeah. Yeah. then you write it in a content-based format. Yeah. Right? And that's that's just three options. Right. There's an endless number of channels, to your point, yeah. about where you could feel that in. Yeah. Like, to, for Q Film's perspective, for Omen, he does his, let's say, passion in marketing through creating films for companies. Yeah. Right? So it's yeah. very unique to see how, no matter whatever it is anyone's doing, I always like to tell them whether they like to believe it or not. Right. That they're marketing themselves. Yes. Or they're marketing their company in whatever mm-hmm. fashion they choose to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, it's dependent on, obviously, what you know, you're comfortable with as a person, but really what it really depends on is what your product or service is. So again, if you are Q Films and you are providing video services that people are probably going to put on digital platforms, then digital is the way to go in terms of your marketing strategy. But if you are a company that makes hearing aids for seniors, digital is perhaps not the way that you're going to go, right? So maybe you're sticking to more of those traditional mediums knowing, you know, that section of society is still reading the physical newspapers. Whereas, again, if you're a tech product that's like disruptive in, uh, you know, wireless headphones or something like that, your target market probably is digitally engaged. So you need to really look at a what your product is, what your target audience is, and how is that target audience ingesting the information the most. So obviously for millennials and for younger people, everyone's so addicted to their phones that that is mobile marketing is where every company is focusing if the millennials are your target audience, right? But that doesn't mean the traditional ways of marketing are dead either. Um, obviously, you know, every city is made up of people of all different age ranges. Every product is not here to serve the younger generation. So you need to kind of keep that in mind. So um, for West Edmonton Mall, for example, our audience is a cross-section of the general population. So I can't have just a digital social media strategy um, because I need to think about who is coming into the mall. So if I'm targeting back-to-school um, fashion or back-to-school shopping or a campaign like that, yes, who who's going back to school are students who are on their phones, but the people paying for the backpack... Uh, potentially are still reading the newspaper or the one or are the ones that are driving around the so maker. the decision maker so you are looking at you know incorporating a billboard strategy or you know a print strategy of some sort um, in addition to the digital push uh, so yeah I feel like you really need to recognize a who your target audience is and B how do they really take in take in information and then target them at those natural touch points I love it yeah that's a really great point yeah I uh I'll never forget when one of my favorite marketing professors said this, and it adds it adds to what you're saying, where at the end of the day, you need to really know who your audience is. Mm-hmm. And when you're in marketing, you have to really understand who that 
person is and what their needs are, how you're going to meet them and put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. So he always used to say, you're going to have a day where you're going to meet a 65 year old yeah. who's running a business yeah. who very much so may have a senior audience. Mm-hmm. You need to put yourself in his shoes and exactly understand how his audience and how he is going to want to receive information. Right. Then he's like, okay, next day you're going to meet a 35 year old, let's say weekend warrior. Right. That's somebody who's running a physio clinic. Yeah. And now you need to put yourself in their shoes, yeah. figure out who their audience is. Yeah. By one, them telling you, yeah. but two, also getting insight on, okay, right. well, who is this person going to want to target their physio to? Right. Right? And then you really get to adjust. Right. You have to almost show a certain side of yourself yeah. that that specific person is going to be a keen to liking. Yes. And that, a lot of what, for me, to your point, is what marketing is. Yeah. Where you find a way to really build a bridge and getting to know uh, who that specific customer or, or that purpose is going to uh, fuel. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's pretty unique. Agreed. I want you to maybe share with the audience about how, with your position as a marketing manager with the mm-hmm. West Edmonton Mall, mm-hmm. dealing with you know events and promotions, what does your day to day look like, and, and what are you essentially, uh, what are you being tracked on? Like, what is it that you feel you're check marking where you realize that okay, you're getting the job done? Mm-hmm. Because there's something that big and handling yeah. to this day one of the biggest malls in the world. Yeah, I can't imagine how many different things you're <laughs> yeah. juggling. Yeah, um, no two days are the same, that's for sure. Uh, It's a mixed bag of everything under the sun. Um, WEM is very unique where it's not just a retail experience. Um, There's the attractions, so Water Park and Galaxy Line being the biggest ones, and then there's a whole bunch of mini attractions, um, and there's also a hotel attached, so there's hospitality marketing as well. Day-to-day is very hard to explain because it really depends on, you know, time of year, what campaigns are currently running, uh, what's coming down the pipeline. Sometimes we're reactive, sometimes we're proactive. Again, it just... It's a mixed bag of things because there's so much going on every day. Uh, but, you know, just like everything else, you have to you have to prioritize what's going on and what needs your immediate attention. Um, so if, you know, the Oilers are coming into WEM for an autograph session, that kind of takes up your entire week. Uh, but on, at the same time, just like any other job, honestly, there's short-term projects, day-to-day projects, and then there's those long-term projects in the back. So you're you're dealing with everything from uh, working with IT to, to make sure the website is functioning the best that it uh, that it can. We have a loyalty app trying to make sure it's, you know, the best user interface experience for the consumers. Um, there's events going on in the mall every day in all the different venues like the Ice Palace or, or the different stages. Um, and then, again, depending on the time of year, there's different kind of shopping and retail pushes that come through. So back to school's just ended. We're already planning for Black Friday and getting into holidays. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's exciting. It's a very dynamic environment, which is great. Um, I have a lot of different uh, touch points, and I really like that. Um, before this, I was doing corporate marketing at Stantec, which was quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's B two B marketing, so obviously B two B and B two C is so different in terms of how you implement. So um, I think there's pros and cons to both. I feel like you need to try both out to then really figure out which one you like better. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of on the fence right now because I feel like, you know, I've done the B2B side with Stantec and now I'm doing the B2C side with WEM. Um, As to where I land, as I said, there's kind of pros and cons to both ends. Uh, But I think B2B corporate marketing really does set 
a very strong foundation that you can then build on. Um, You know, it is a lot more regimented and it's not as dynamic. uh, But at the same time, it's so competitive in that space. The stakes are so much higher, even though WEM is more, you know, B2C is public facing and and you kind of everything that I do gets put out into the public. So even if I'm approving like an Instagram post or an Instagram caption, it's going out into the public and it's going to be privy to opinions almost instantaneously. Yes. So in, in those terms, the stakes are really high. Um, but on the corporate side, even though it's not public and you're dealing with other business entities, um, financially, the stakes are extremely high um, in corporate marketing. So that then has its own set of repercussions, right? That has its own set of consequences and how you manage your workload, how you go about doing a project that you're maybe involved with that is $9 million on the corporate side is very different than maybe I need to um, implement like a back to school campaign for Mm -hmm. WEM. So uh, the language they speak is very different. The stakeholders they're speaking to are so different here. You know, on the WEM side, I'm trying to see okay, what's a cool picture of a back-to-school thing that a kid's going to be excited about and tell his mom that, like, I really want this. Definitely. And then on the corporate side, it's it's so different, right? It's like, okay, how can I help Stantag win this, like, proposal for a huge city park or whatever yeah. whatever that is. So my professional experience has been very diverse, but I think that's really added to making me more well-rounded. I think if I stuck to one or the other, I would feel a little bit pigeonholed. But now I'm in a much better position to, again, take the decision on what route I want to go and what um, type of marketing I want to explore further. So for any students that are kind of taking marketing right now, and obviously I teach at McEwen, that's what I tell them. You don't, I can tell you whatever, you know, from my experience and maybe it can guide your choices, but you really need to do both of them in practice and do the two different kinds of marketing in practice to really then decide, um, you know, where you think you can flourish and where you have um, the most value that you bring to the table. It picks at different aspects of your personality, right? Because different things are getting highlighted and different kind of skill sets need to come to the forefront. so yeah, I feel like you need to try both to kind of figure out where you fit. That's a really good point. Yeah. I'm really glad you shared that because yeah. I I couldn't I couldn't relate. Uh, sorry, I could relate actually a lot because I used to as well think that marketing was pigeonholed in this one aspect. Yeah. But when you go out and you actually apply your marketing skills in the real world, right? And you get to really see the difference once you yeah. felt what B two B is and what B two C is. Yeah. And I was in a very B two B formal environment. Yeah. To your point. When I was working as a consultant with uh, Post Media and Edmonton Journal, mm-hmm. and that was an environment where it was, you know, it was formal. It was let, let's go to the business owner, <laughs> yeah. let's create this needs assessment, and I got to really see what a needs assessment really is. Yeah, I got to apply certain questions that I needed to ask mm-hmm. a decision maker. Yeah, and then on the flip side, when I went to Telus, yeah, as a marketing manager, I got to see okay, well now I'm I'm the Captain Fun guy. I'm yeah. going to events. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm dealing with kids. Yeah. I'm dealing with, you know, strategically figuring out where we need to go. Yeah. Where there's certain, let's say, communities in Edmonton where yeah. there's going to be fiber lit. Yeah. And that was where I got to kind of show more of my own personality yeah. as opposed to being very formal. Yeah. So it was really neat to see the difference between yeah. both and then seeing, okay, well, which which one do I want to yeah. ultimately stick with? Yeah. 
right? And it's it's good to do that early on in your career if you can. And I think like internships, for example, are a great way to kind of get a taste of different industries. And this is not to say again, B two B and B two C are very kind of generalized. Um, two pathways that you can take in marketing, but even within those, there is um, different levels of that that you can experience. Um, so if you're doing B2C, for example, you can be anything from like overarchingly um, in charge of a whole bunch of different things to the public or just social media by itself, right? So you can do social media marketing or you can do digital by itself where you're just dealing with website app deployment um, or you can do events marketing. So all these things are all public facing. But again, even within B2C, they're different touch points and different access points to the public. Um, so I feel like for all students, I think internships are really, really important. And that's how I kind of figured out where, you know, the value that I bring to the table was through doing internships throughout those summer months, whether I was going to Thailand one summer, then, you know, the very next summer I was doing an internship with um, uh, the province of Alberta. So it's it's not as exciting as Thailand was, yeah. but I think it was really important to get that taste of that corporate business environment um, and really, really figuring out what the day-to-day looks like mm-hmm. instead of just what the idea of it is yeah. or hearing it from somebody Definitely. else. Yeah. Is, is there a way you can maybe share with us a specific campaign, whether it's through what you've done with mm-hmm. your work at West Edmonton Mall or something you've done in the past that to this day you'll, you'll never forget it was exciting it was an ability for you to take in your own experiences and personality to ultimately have a very successful campaign come out of it yeah uh, i mean if you want to talk about a consumer facing campaign um, then for sure i can refer to like a wem campaign so we just did the wem fashion show earlier this year and um, sarah jessica parker's brand actually just signed on with triple five which is the parent company of west edmonton mall so she's opening stores at all three of the triple five properties. So WEM being one of them in Edmonton, then Mall of America and American Dream in New Jersey. The store looks amazing, by the way. Yeah, it does, hey. Should I take credit? Thanks. I know two Thanks, people sitting Kenny. beside me who were a part of it. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, that was a really cool campaign. Again, obviously, thanks to, you know, the corporate affiliation that happened, it just... I was just told one day that, you know, this is not going to be like our regular annual fashion shows that we do. We have Sarah Jessica Parker coming. So that completely changed the ball game of how we treated it. Um, you know, realizing that this is an opportunity for us to really elevate the game. If, if there's any time that um, you're given an opportunity on a platter for WEM, this would be it. There's a huge fashion icon coming to open her own store and has agreed to be a part of the WEM fashion show. Um, so that was a really successful campaign. Obviously, I mean, in terms of the buzz and things, we didn't have to do too much. It was, you know, again, I really focused on uh, large scale strategy and large scale deployment. So a lot of the times, again, depending on what your product is or what your messaging is, either you do macro level, micro level, or a combination of both. So for Sarah Jessica, I completely axed the micro level marketing and it was all macro. So I was like, okay, I need billboards on Calgary trail. I need billboards at the airport. Um, we just need to get the word out that she's coming yeah. and I know the rest will just follow. And that, know. again, yeah, with, cele- with any kind of a celebrity involved, the marketing, again, looks very different, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, again, focusing on those macro level things. 
knowing that a lot of the fashion enthusiasts and bloggers and things like that are all on Instagram. So we had a very strong, again, Instagram campaign promoting the event. And then obviously within WEM, because we get so much foot traffic, we made sure that it was very visible that this event was happening and she was coming. Um, and so it was very based on just exposure and amplifying what was already happening. Um, and, and, and it worked, right? So we had our tickets sell out like within the first half an hour that we put them out. And um, we doubled our numbers. Usually the fashion show seats about 350 people on the Ice Palace. And this time we had close to 650 or 700. Yeah. Um, again, just amping up the game, the kind of coverage that we had. Um, usually we'd have internal people, um, you know, cover for photo and video. Obviously I reached out to Q Films um, and we had multiple videographers, multiple photographers um, covering the event. So it really just gave us a chance to elevate the game. And again, it's like capitalizing on those opportunities. We could have just, you know, added her in and run the show like we do every year, which again, every year it is great. Uh, But we were like, you know what, this is an opportunity for us to really take it to the next level and make a bigger splash. Uh, Reaching out to media. So usually we just kind of send out a press release and whatever media is interested will, you know, write in and say, hey, we want to attend your fashion show and they do coverage on it. But this time we reached out to our partners at Bell, um, at Rogers Media, proactively letting them know, hey, this is, you know, an exclusive event. We would love for you to come cover. We had journalists that had flew down from Toronto and Vancouver um, because of the press release as well. So really, um, again, amplifying that message on that macro level as much as possible because we were dealing with now a macro level celebrity. So the campaign and the strategy all really changed depending on what we were dealing with. Um, and then I would say a campaign. It wasn't a campaign, obviously, because I was with Stantec for this one. But it was, I mentioned the $9 million before, but I worked on a bid that was worth $9 million. Wow. And so um, the age that I did it at and the fact that, you know, my client group internally and my managers at Stantec trusted me with that project was was a great mm-hmm. kind of success. And I talk about it in every interview and every chance I get because it, uh, it is a moment of pride that, you know, I had anything to contribute to winning that kind of work for the company that I was working for. So, yeah, I feel like on the corporate side, that one, and then on the consumer side, the SJP one. And I find that amazing how that really is what marketing also is is, is represented as, is how big do you want to make something? Yeah. When you have someone such as Sarah Jessica Parker, is your mentality, oh, you know what? With her name slapped on one ad, it will do. It will do just fine. But yeah. instead, you're like, no, okay. Even though her name is big, let's continue to pump this out. Let's get excited about it. Take it to the next level. Right. Yeah. Let's make this double what we're yeah. already used right. to because we are able to utilize her name and her reputation. Yeah. And then let's recognize that this can be bigger than what we want it to be. So right. we're all willing. And then long-term effects, right? Not just thinking about, okay, pre-event and during event, how are we going to make it amazing? But really post-event, how are you continuing to leverage this really cool thing that we were able to bring to Edmonton um, and, you know, turn it into long-term gains for them all? Definitely. Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. so cool. Good for you for doing all that. Wow. Well, I didn't bring her in personally, Kenny. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're affiliated. Yes. It was a cool project to yeah, be a part of, for awesome. sure. I'm just picturing you just giving her a call, being like, hey, what's up, girl? I mean, thanks for liking She's... my pick on Monet mode. You ready to come by? <laughs> yeah, right. I have some samples to send yeah, you. Yeah. No, she was amazing. And again, dealing with a lot of these, um, a lot of this talent too. So, Wem also does sound waves. Um, and really seeing the difference between, you know, these 
these young DJs who are trying to make it into the world versus someone like Sarah Jessica Parker, who is so well known and seeing the way they function um, and seeing really how um, how impactful the way you conduct yourself can be to somebody else. And that's really something, even the, you know, the three hours that I got with SJP that day, um, it really made a big impact on me. She was so kind. She was so humble um, and so sweet. And she really can throw her weight around if she wants, um, but she really doesn't. And she's, she's so genuine. She asks people their story. It's not all about her. Um, and I feel like just seeing someone in power conducting themselves that way and really just spreading positivity and kindness. Um, that was, that was really amazing to see. And, you know, just to see, not that I would ever get to her level, but, um, even in my little way, you know, around even your personal network, how, far positivity can take you, how far being humble can take you. Um, and you never know, you know, who is in what stage of life and what they're taking in from your behavior or from your communication. So really being conscious and conducting yourself in a way that can have a positive impact or even put a smile on someone's face. I think that goes a long way. And I remember, I remember you just, we had this discussion a while back um, where you had an experience with another um, you know, client, I'm not going to mention mm-hmm. who, but um, the difference between her and S- SJP, mm. the attitude and kind of how the process went. Right. Um, like you said, it has a big impact, right? Yeah. She could, like you said, could throw her weight around. She could say, I want this, this, yeah. this, or whatever the case. Yeah. And then you met her and you had a chance to speak with her. And then yeah. seeing that, you know, she's treating you as another human being. Yeah instead of just another kind of pawn in the whole mix of the whole business side of things. Yeah. And I think that's a very, like, again, overarching macro level thing. It's not like, you know, we're interacting with celebrity on, celebrities on the daily basis or that we're celebrities ourselves that we need to, like, watch how we operate. But I really think you can inculcate that in your regular life. And you never know when a friend is going through a hard day and they haven't spoken to you about it. But just, you know, having coffee with you, like, what energy are you bringing to the table? What energy are you bringing into their sphere? And I'm very sensitive to energies now. And I feel like the vibes that I get from people really dictate how much I'm going to interact with that person. Um, You have to be, you have to treat your own mind as a very sacred place, I feel like, because everything that you take in is going to have an effect on you. And that is then going to affect your choices and your decisions. Your choices and your decisions are then ultimately going to decide what kind of life you have. So I treat that with um, a lot of respect and a lot of, again, conscious sensitivity on what I'm letting my mind think on what I'm letting my mind get influenced by. And so if you have people in your life that, you know, are pulling you down or not feeling, not making you feel so great about yourself or that you recognize as toxic, like you need to shed those people. Um, And I think that was one of the best decisions I've made, probably, you know, going through my mid twenties. And I think moving to San Francisco had a lot to do with it. Just seeing like, who's really making the effort to keep in touch with you. Um, You know, when I come back into town and I'm only in town for four days, who's like, you know what? You don't need to come make time for me. I'm just going to come crash at your parents. Let's hang out. I just want to see you. Right. And not really, instead of dwelling on the people that didn't make the effort, 
focus your energies on the people that did and see what a positive impact that has on you because you'll be much more positive positive and much more grateful i'm sorry grateful yourself for the people that are in your life um so i try to really conduct myself in a way where every interaction i'm having you should always uh, leave it positive and you should always bring in uh, great happy encouraging energy um, and my friends have commented on it like they you know they notice uh, you know what when we're around you you're you're kind of uh, I was really having a bad day but you really changed that around like two months ago and I was like what why didn't you tell me back then that this was going on and they're like well we didn't want to talk about it at that point but you were just like so positive and and yeah so you just never know what backstory people are coming in with um, when you're interacting with them or what kind of day they're having again what kind of problems people have in their lives so I feel like if you just focus on being positive and and bring that and if that's what you bring to the table um, then you never know who's whose life you're touching and I for sure have people in my life that do that for me so I try to kind of conduct myself that way as well. Yeah. No wonder why Swindy is such a happy face on his, uh, <laughs> you know, he's got a keeper right here. <laughs> that was a quick shout out for behind the scenes. I, no, but exactly. Like, to your point, Manip, when you take the time to focus on what you do have, who you do have who's willing to reach out, especially yeah. when you're in or out of town for a certain moment. And, yeah. and obviously that individual knows it. It's it's being able to understand that there's people or certain things that we're drawn to in our life that ultimately mm-hmm. make us that positive. Yeah. And then even to your point about your friend sharing it a couple months later, I felt yeah. like maybe as the months went on, they, they needed to realize that, wow, now that they've seen you, they realize how much better mm-hmm. their mindset was just after you blessed them with that type of mindset. Yeah, or they, you know, they've had the time to process whatever difficult thing was going through, you know, they were going through, and then had time to reflect, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, I just find, like, energies and vibes, and if you pay attention to that stuff, it's very easy to tell who's in your life for what reason. Yes. Um, and so, just being conscious of it, totally. right? Just being conscious of it yeah. and realizing that it's going to have an effect on you. It's going to have an effect on your mood, yes. how proactive you're going to be about um, things in your life and how you're going to conduct yourself, right? Yeah. If you're dealing with something that you're like, I'm not happy with that person, but you don't want to say it out loud. So subconsciously it's there. And then your next interaction isn't so great because that, there's that undercurrent still playing through. And then you're not happy with this, you know, with that interaction. Then you're not happy with the relationship. It just Unresolved negativity will lead to negativity and positivity will attract just that so yeah it's exactly why i see why you're so successful at being able to juggle everything that you're doing and being able to have the relationship you have with your parents and with your husband right because everyone's trying to figure that out they're all trying to figure out that balance yeah and i wanted to have us conclude on our last topic here about how you're somebody who essentially is defying the odds of even being a professor without (laughs) the let's say once upon a time credentials you would need where a lot of times to your point before we went uh, on uh, air here is how once upon a time to be a professor you kind of needed (laughs) the phd you needed to have years of academic experience but you yourself mentioned how a university here in our city reached out to you and said listen we see amazing things you're doing in the marketing space we'd love for you to share this as a professor to our students and i kind of want to know based off of your experience so far as a professor, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you find that you're doing 
that is quite unique and different mm-hmm. from the lens of being a professor right. and that you believe needs to be addressed to the students. So that way they take those as tokens of learning experiences during the process of school mm-hmm. and once they graduate afterwards. Yeah, um, I am a quite young for a professor. Uh, I started teaching four years ago. So I've been mm-hmm. teaching at McEwen part-time since then. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad used to teach at Nate. So academia was kind of always in the mix again if you have somebody who you know does something there is a bit of familiarity in that space and i was already working with stantec when McEwen came to me with the opportunity so uh, again you know not f- making sure that i'm not boxed or labeled just doing one thing that was the reason i took up the opportunity just making sure that you know just because i have you know in my mid-20s this cool corporate job and and from the outside this Um, this path that is probably going to lead to success uh, to continue your own development, right? So I took up the opportunity uh, and McEwen and other universities in general are really starting to change their approach towards education as well. So as you said, like I don't have a PhD, I do have a master's, um, but they really want to bring in industry professionals into the classroom and um, they want students to be interacting with professors who have worked in the workplace, who have um, really experienced some of these diverse things that the students in the classroom are inspired by. Um, And they want to create that aspirational, tangible work culture that someone can relate to um, instead of just having, um, you know, professors, again, who have years and years of experience and and have their multiple PhDs and things like that. Um, I do think there's value in that as well. And, you know, every faculty uh, for sure around around the world has a mix of people who are industry experts and then your profs, right, the PhD profs. Where I feel like I really add value to my students' experience is, again, sharing those experiences of the workplace. So instead of teaching them just concepts out of the textbook that's talking about corporate marketing, I'm able to speak to how corporate marketing is and what the day-to-day can potentially look like. What are the different avenues? Um, Same with B2C marketing. If you're giving an example of how to run a successful successful marketing campaign versus... um, you know, just the case study that's in the textbook, the impact that it makes is very different. And I find when I just stick to kind of the textbook definition of things and I'm just trying to run through the material, the engagement level of the students is very different as compared to if I'm telling a story about something I did at WEM, because that's something that they can relate to. Or there's some students in class who want that job, who want to be able to work on campaigns like that. So then their questions and their interactions with me during discussions in the class become a lot more authentic and they're a lot more engaged and interested. There's a higher level of respect coming from them because they realize that you've lived it. It's coming from your own experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that, that really does help. And even when I was doing my master's, a lot of it, um, a lot of the profs that I had, again, were these industry experts. So we had, you know, marketing profs that li- um, that worked in um, the tech industry, that worked in banking, that worked in consumer-facing brands, and really getting tidbits of what's their actual job like. Like, I know we need to run through all this coursework, 
But I was like, you know, I would sit in class and really look forward to their stories, their work stories, their project successes, their project failures, um, how they dealt with everything. So I felt like if as a student, that's what interested me. That's what I really try to bring in the classroom then is talk about those real life things that I think students will really engage with in a much more meaningful manner. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I wish I wasn't late to the party. I would have went on my, what do you call it? The... My system. I want Professor Mudd for sure. Awesome. Honestly, like I love the professors that are willing to be a little bit more real. Yes. And they share that experience. So I bet you your students just, you know, they're all over you. I don't know. I'm too scared to go on rate my prof, but (laughs) you don't even choose to go on. Yeah, I've I've never looked at it. I'm scared to see what's on there, but. Yeah, I for sure get tons of students, you know, who after class will add me on LinkedIn and even yeah. to this day will message me and be like, hey, I have an interview. I remember you mentioning this, like, where should I prep or what should I do? Um, so I think they really see it, see it as an opportunity where I am a lot more accessible and I really understand their situation. I mean, when you have a major declared, you're kind of like, I'll take any job in marketing, right? And then yeah. you start applying and you're like, whoa, there's all these different kinds yeah. and where do I go? And and so I feel like having those real conversations and I always find between breaks or right after class, you know, I'll have a bit of a lineup for people who want to ask about the real life stories that I've told yeah. told in class and, you know, something different resonates with everybody. But yeah, yeah they're a lot more engaged, I find. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about that, when, you know, once a marketing major student goes out and applies and they see all these uh, amazing opportunities in marketing and all these more options that they would have even you know, they wouldn't have even imagined there to be. Right. They see someone like yourself who's had all that experience, who currently is doing multiple different things that you enjoy doing in marketing, mm-hmm. for them to believe that they can combine their passion with their career in, right. in marketing if they so choose. Or, you know, right. keep them separate. That's that's not a problem either. So that's what I really find, like, when I, in the beginning of the class, you know, I always start my class with, um, obviously, like, name, major, um, but what's your dream job? What's your passion? And even the semester that I just started right now, um, last week, you know, students are saying, well, for a job, I think I want this, but like, I love that. And it's two completely disjointed things. And they kind of almost speak like they know that they need to choose one. So it's really from, you know, class one trying to say, you don't need to choose. You don't need to be labeled. You don't need to be boxed. You can do five different things if you want to do five different things. Just because you have a nine to five doesn't mean you can't do something else in the weekend, can't work on something else on the side on the weekends. You guys have other jobs. You're doing this out of your passion. So it's really... Um, giving them examples, again, of real-life local people. This is not far-fetched people living in L.A. and New York, and only those people get to live their dreams, right? It doesn't matter where you are physically. It's it's really up to you and how proactive you want to be and what you want to fill your day with. So if you're really passionate about bikes, go ahead, you know, design bikes and do all of that. Um, but you could be working in, you know, corporate marketing at the same time. And you know what? You can still have a tattoo parlor on the side too if you want. And yeah. it's like, that's what I find. Students have all these like different individual trajectories and they're kind of like, well, and then I'll pick the safe option out of that. And then, yeah, yeah the passion is what it is kind of thing. And, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah, well, no, don't don't give up on that. You can be multiple things, and you can you can do all the things that you want to do. Yeah. You don't you don't have to pick one or the other. So, well, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, with uh, if you don't mind me asking, what class specifically are you teaching in marketing right now? So I teach um, an array of classes. Uh, this semester, I'm teaching international marketing. It's a 400 level elective. 
think it's 403. Um, but I've taught, you know, everything from introduction to marketing, to integrated marketing, to digital marketing. Um, so it really depends on obviously what the need of the hour is. And they keep kind of changing the electives that they that they bring about as well. Yeah. So, but yeah, this semester it's international marketing. Out of my own vested curiosity, mm -hmm. anyone else out there who sees you as a professor at such a young age, yeah. is, is the base base mandatory prerequisite to get a master's or could it be an MBA? Could it be a, a post-grad degree in order for, let's say, McEwen University to accept someone to come in as a professor? Honestly, when they bring in industry experts, there really isn't a base mark. Um, so your experience can speak as loudly about your credentials and um, the reason of them hiring you as much as your degrees can. Um, so I know profs that actually only have an undergrad, but then they have like 20 years of experience in a specific niche field yeah. and they get invited to be guest lecturers or, you know, guest professors as well. Um, so... I don't think the benchmark really should be, I need to have this degree or I need to have X amount of years. It's really more about your profile as a whole. So you need to have your niche that you're really good at. And if you're really good at that, they'll see value in bringing you in and how you can provide instruction or, you know, provide any kind of an inspiration to the students. Um, I would say, you know, if you want to do regular teaching at McEwen and want to be a sessional instructor, obviously it's a bit more structured. Um, so for that, for sure, like a master's or an MBA would be base level of what you need to have um, for them to even entertain you to be kind of a, a you know, long-term faculty. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's it's not so much about the paper degrees and, and that kind of stuff anymore. It's yeah. really um, what you bring to the table. And even in my classes, like I really try to have a lot of guest speakers come in and speak about the different areas that, that they're specialized in um, relating to the course, course material that, that I'm teaching. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like there's no like base level. I mean, if your end goal as, you know, uh, a professional already is to be uh, to be a professor, then the PhD is the right way to go. Um, I didn't pursue my PhD because I have all these other interests and I, and I didn't think that I wanted to teach full time. Uh, so I didn't go that route and I was lucky enough to get an opportunity with just having a master's and, and the experience that I do have. Uh, but yeah, if you know you want to be a prof and that's what you want to do long term, then, then I would say, you know, a PhD is worth the investment. It's good to know. Yeah. Like right now, your life right now, it's like, you, it's like what I'm idolizing in the future. <laughs> like, I want to be Mana. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> it's all, awesome. you know, every day is not the same and it's not all easy running and there's bumps along the way and there's, there's always stories and, and things that kind of build you up. And it's, it's not about, as they say, you know, it's not about getting knocked down. It's really getting back up after you get knocked down. So it's, you know, if your company's running in debt for months and months and months, it's, it's about, okay, you know what? One last try. If it doesn't work this time, okay, maybe then I'll, then I'll rethink this plan and then I'll rethink. And you just never know when that last try can lead to so many other things. So it's for sure not all peaches and cream and sunshine and rainbows. There's a lot of hard work, dedication, a lot of giving up of, um, of personal time and really, you know, filling up your evenings and weekends with these professional pursuits. Yes. Um, and, you know, being married, trying to balance my family, my in-laws, obviously wanting to give time to my friends and have a social life and continue staying a well-rounded individual. It takes a lot, but... 
Um, I'm used to kind of hustling all the time, but I have a wonderful husband who, you know, makes sure that we get our time out and he slows down the pace when, when we do need to slow down. Um, so that's great, you know, making time for travel or if you can't, you know, go away to Europe next month, maybe you can go away to the mountains. It's, it. it's you know, finding those little, those those sweet, little escapes. sweet escapes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I think for me, again, my everything that I do and my entire uh, decision making or uh, anything that I invest my time into is to cultivate a life that I'm proud of. Um, so whether that's the people in your life, whether it's what you're doing work wise, uh, to me, it's to continue to stay inspired. Um, I get that, you know, Again, we don't have the reach that a celebrity would have or the impact that you could have um, on millions of people. But even if I can impact the people in my personal network to live a life that's inspired and positive, that's that's really that's really all I'm going for. Um, and, and more than anything, you have to do it for yourself right? For the person that you are. I feel like if you yourself feel like you're an inspired, uh, fulfilled individual who pushes themselves and is living the best life that they possibly can in that moment, that that then resonates to everything else that you're doing. Um, so for me, it's, it's continue to stay inspired. Don't don't give up, don't get boxed, don't get labeled. Um, again, ever since I moved to this country, that's something that um, became very important to me at a young age to not be labeled and not be boxed. First, it was the girl that came from India. Then it was, okay, the girl that maybe does just this or the girl that does marketing. Um, it's really constantly continuing to push myself. And maybe in the beginning, I started out as, you know, trying to prove a point or trying to tell people that, you know, I'm not who you think I am. And now it's really just about myself. How much can I keep pushing my own threshold and, you know, going to bed every night and just being proud of the day that I've had. Um, so that's, that's what it's about for me. Continue to do what you're doing and it is an absolute blessing to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah, Appreciate no it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the second floor podcast. This episode was actually brought to you by LuxMarket.com. If you feel like you enjoyed this episode, please go on iTunes Podcast, give us a review, let us know what you think, and feel free to share this with a friend who you also believe would enjoy the episode.